Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest mental health-related news. This is the show where you'll hear everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, along the way trying to reduce the stigma of having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and better informing the general public about mental illness. And you get that with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and without the hype and distortion and misinformation of other media sources. Welcome back, folks. This is the Wednesday, May 7th, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. And as always, appreciate your joining me for the show, and especially those of you who download the podcast from iTunes. Thanks so much for your support. And also those of you listening in, live on americaswebradio.com or playing back the podcast on that same website. Thanks very much for your support as well. And we're going to get tonight's show started by talking about an old topic in mental health and psychiatry, but still a relevant one, and that is the debate, which really shouldn't be a debate, and I'll get into that, but the debate between medications versus therapy for the treatment of mental illness. There are two main ways to treat mental illness, medication and therapy. Often these are combined, and I would argue they should be combined more often than not, but other times patients choose one or another. So which is best? Well, there was another recent study looking at the two, to try to answer that question, it compared the effectiveness of medication versus therapy for major psychiatric disorders. Now, it wasn't actually a new study. In other words, they didn't take a bunch of patients and said, okay, well, you guys all have the same illness, and we're going to treat some of you with medication, and we're going to treat some of you with therapy only, and we're going to see who does better. And then, you know, to really make it a good study, they would add a third treatment arm where they combine medication and therapy and maybe to really do a good job, a fourth group who would just have a wait list as a kind of a control. But instead, since that's kind of difficult to set up and probably very expensive too, they reviewed previous studies that were done on the issue. And they tried to be very thorough. They looked at 60, more than 60 studies. And the thing is, the different medical trials they looked at differed too much from one another to determine that one treatment was better than another. In other words, of, of these more than 60 trials they looked at, the methodologies were varying from each other too widely to make direct comparisons. And so the authors concluded that both medication and therapy can provide benefit to patients, but that both can also be improved or used together 
more effectively. And I'm glad to hear that was one of their conclusions, because as I said, I think medication and therapy should be used together more often than not. They looked through four major medical research databases for all studies that reviewed various treatment types of mental illness, and they sought comparisons between any of the following combinations, medication versus placebo or fake medication that researchers told patients should help them feel better, therapy versus placebo, that is, you can't really give someone fake therapy, so what instead they do is instead of having actual counseling with a therapist, they do some other type of activities such as exercise, for example, although I don't think that makes a good placebo because, as we well know, exercise has also been found to help with mood. And they looked at studies that just went head-to-head medication versus therapy, and they also looked at studies that was medication plus therapy using one or the other, and that really would be the ideal design, but perhaps um, they wouldn't have found enough studies for a comparison if they just used studies that had that setup. Now, to their credit, they looked through about 45,000 medical papers, and then they whittled that down to 61 that met their qualifications. Combined, these systematic review papers included over 137,000 participants and investigated 21 different psychiatric disorders, which included schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, several different anxiety disorders, several eating disorders, alcoholism, and opiate addiction, among others. The researchers found that the differences among the different trials made it difficult to compare them effectively. For example, the trials involving medication tended to involve more participants than those involving therapy. The medication trials also were more likely to have good comparison groups and to ensure that the patients did not know if they were receiving the real medication or the placebo, which improves the quality and reliability of the results. However, the trials involving therapy tended to show a greater effect in terms of the difference between treatment and no treatment. In other words, the improvement that a patient saw with therapy compared to no therapy tended to be greater than the improvement patients saw with medication compared to no medication. Now, this may sound somewhat familiar to those of you who are familiar with the controversy several years ago in which a paper was published in a very prominent medical journal charging that antidepressants were no better than placebos. The fact of the matter is there is often very little difference between medication and placebo in those types of trials where those two are compared. And the reason is that 
patients in psychiatric drug trials are given very powerful incentives to report improvement. They have regular contact with caring health professionals. They have physical examination and laboratory work. They have remuneration for at least transportation, if not for their participation altogether, not to mention the free medication. And so that is why in psychiatric drug trials, those placebos work very, very well. It's a distorted system, and it's very difficult for the medication to drastically do a better job than placebo. Whereas if you have someone in therapy or not, obviously there would be expected to be a bigger difference between those two groups. Now, as far as the rate of participants dropping out, the trials involving therapy had lower rates of participants dropping out compared to the medication trials and had longer-term data on the participants. Well, that also seems fairly intuitive. Uh, It's hard for therapy to cause negative side effects, right? uh, As opposed to medications, which often cause uncomfortable physical side effects, and that would be expected that medication trials would therefore have a higher dropout rate than trials just involving therapy. Overall, the researchers concluded that both medication and therapy could effectively treat the various disorders studied. In some cases, it depended on the disorder, whether therapy or medication tended to be more successful. For example, medication tended to work better for schizophrenia and mild chronic depression, but therapy was more effective for major depression and bulimia. However, the researchers also noted that there is a lot of room for improvement for both therapy and medication. Because there were too many differences between the studies to effectively compare medication and therapy, the authors recommended that more studies directly comparing the two treatment types be publicly funded. They also recommended that more research look into how medication and therapy can be best used together to treat mental illness rather than debate the use of one treatment over the other. And I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, I think they do work better together, except in very rare cases, and we need to be looking into how to integrate them better, not to debate how one is better than the other. Now, for those of you who are interested, this was published in the April 30 journal JAMA Psychiatry, Journal of the AMA, American Medical Association Psychiatry, is the name of that journal, the April 30th edition. Now, I would just like to explain a little bit about the whole dichotomy between medication and therapy. Uh, It didn't used to be that they were separate entities. It used to be that they were done together. Psychiatrists would do both. And somewhere around the very, very early 1980s, the health insurance companies realized that 
hey, you know, the idea of paying an MD, a physician, a psychiatrist, for 50 minutes or an hour of psychotherapy, a lot of money, that's too expensive for us. Let's say we tell all mental health patients they need to go see someone other than the MD for psychotherapy, the, a PhD, a psychologist, or a master's level uh, clinical social worker or licensed professional counselor. That's a lot less expensive. So this is where the whole dichotomy between the psychiatrist prescribing the medication and the non-MD doing the therapy came about. It was a cost-cutting measure by the health insurance companies. Let's hold that there while we take our first commercial break. I'll continue that thought when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Certification. Do you know why becoming a certified healthcare consumerism specialist is more important than ever in 2014? Adding this specialized designation to your credentials tells employers or your clients that you understand how much our industry has changed and how to navigate that change successfully. IHC University's certification program offers coursework both online and live at their biannual forum conference series, and testing is completed online. Reaffirm your position as a leader in the health and benefit management industry. Download our certification overview and learn more at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Have you heard of quantitative? fluid analysis, commonly called QFA, this test assesses your body at a cellular level and gives insight into your illness. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center offers the QFA, an FDA-approved test that can often provide early diagnosis of conditions before they can be detected with other tests. Dr. Elena George believes in an integrative approach to medicine. She believes in treating the problem and not the symptom. Following a review of your results, Dr. George will suggest treatment approaches such as nutritional counseling and or the use of pharmaceutical grade enzymes and nutritional supplements. Surgery and prescription medication will be recommended only when necessary. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Call their office at 404-591-9100 to make an appointment and mention that you heard this ad on Radio Sandy Springs and get 10% off of QFA testing. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay here with you with all the latest mental health related news. Right before the commercial break, I was explaining how health insurance companies were the impetus behind this separation of therapy and medication for mental illness. It's less expensive for them to have a non-MD do the therapy as opposed to the MD. But that doesn't mean that the treatments should be compared one against the other. And they still can be combined and usually work better. 
to when uh, when done together. Um, in fact, for some psychiatric diagnoses, the combination of medication and psychotherapy is literally the gold standard in terms of how to treat certain illnesses. This is especially true of certain anxiety disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder, which usually responds best to a combination of medication and cognitive behavioral therapy. And there are also uh, studies in other anxiety disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder and specific phobias, uh, where the combination of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, uh, which is not just simply talking through one's feelings, but specifically working on how to counteract negative thought patterns, which lead to uh, negative emotions. Uh, in fact, the CBT component of the combination of that with therapy usually makes for longer lasting relief from symptoms than just medication alone. Uh, but even in other illnesses and, and mood disorders, the combination of therapy and medication usually works best. And for people who still have trouble understanding why they should have to see two different people for their psychiatric treatment, the uh, MD for the medication and the non-MD for the counseling or psychotherapy, I look at it this way. Let's compare it to an orthopedic injury. Let's say you hurt yourself playing sports or you have an accident and you have some sort of orthopedic injury, your arm, your leg, your back, how, whatever it is. You go see the orthopedic surgeon or a medical evaluation of the injury and medical treatment thereof, which could include medication, could include surgery, but you see a non-MD to rehabilitate from that injury, right? You go to a physical therapist or sometimes also an occupational therapist to rehabilitate and recover functioning from that injury. And to me, this is very analogous to the treatment of mental illness. The MD, the psychiatrist, prescribes medication to address the physical medical problem behind what in many cases can be conceptualized as a brain injury. Uh, it's a chemical hormonal brain injury. It's not like a stroke or a concussion, but nonetheless, it can be thought of that most major psychiatric syndromes, especially mood disorders like depression, are a sort of chemical or hormonal brain injury, and that the medications a psychiatrist prescribes are designed to repair the damage done to the brain by that injury. Uh, the direct injurious elements in depression, we know for a fact, are stress hormones, things like cortisol, which increase the circulation of inflammatory proteins and damage certain parts of the brain. And then in order to rehabilitate and recover mental and emotional functioning and functioning socially and occupationally in relationships, because all these things can be damaged by anxiety or depression, you go see the non-MD for counseling and psychotherapy, which helps recover functioning in all these other areas. 
And so that's how I see the two complementing each other. And it should be the exception that they are not done together. Now, that's in the ideal. In the real world, there is very, very little health insurance coverage for psychotherapy. And where it is available, it's still very expensive because there are always going to be co-pays and they add up. The other thing is that even if someone does have fairly decent health insurance coverage for psychotherapy, there are still going to be limits to how available it is because very few therapists actually accept health insurance and that's because the reimbursement rates that health insurance companies offer therapists are pathetically and embarrassingly low and so few therapists choose to accept health insurance. So really there is uh, interference with the whole model of treating mental illness with therapy alone or therapy plus medication owing to the fact that the health insurance industry sees brief infrequent visits with the psychiatrist for medication as less costly than more frequent lengthier visits for psychotherapy which may go on for months or even years and so they either try not to cover psychotherapy at all or they impose limits on psychotherapy, uh, restricting people to, say, no more than X number of visits per year, and in some cases, restricting people to a certain number of visits per lifetime on the health insurance plan. And, uh, of course, this is very arbitrary. It isn't fair. It is discriminatory. There are supposed to be rules in place which prevent this type of activity on the part of health insurance companies treating psychotherapy for mental illness as some sort of second-class medical citizen, but nonetheless, it still exists, it still goes on. Uh, but be that as it may, um, absent any of these typical obstacles to obtaining treatment, including psychotherapy, usually uh, it is best to have medication management and psychotherapy uh, when under the care uh, of mental health clinicians for any psychiatric illness. Now we're going to turn our attention to two articles which relate to something that's very current right about now. College students, um, and I guess high school students too, are getting close to or right smack in the middle of final exams just about now. Um, there may be some schools who finish up quite early and are just finishing up already at this uh, very early stage, this first week in May. And so two articles caught my eye, and we're going to go over both of them. One, the first one is, what does pulling an all-nighter do to your body? And trust me, it is not a good thing to do. And then the other article has to do with a study they did on Ivy League schools where students admit using attention deficit hyperactivity disorder drugs for better grades, even if they don't have 
ADHD. So let's take a look at both of these issues, and we're going to start with what pulling an all-nighter does to your body. It's a rite of passage for incoming college freshmen and maybe upperclassmen as well, and it's a weekly occurrence by the time finals arrive in May. All-nighters mark the full surrender to academic demands, as if to look sleep square in the face and tell it unafraid, I'm too busy for you. But college students and the rest of the sleep-deprived on-purpose world aren't invincible, despite what lots and lots of caffeine may suggest. Sleep is important, and getting none of it, let alone an hour too little, throws your body's regular processes for a loop, jostling the delicate balance of hormones out of whack and signaling to your brain that something is definitely wrong. A number of things happen when you pull an all-nighter, and none of them are good. The latest theories proposed by sleep research implicate sleep as serving the critical function of flushing out waste that accumulates in your brain during the day. You're bombarded with all sorts of sensory information, most of which you'll never use. So like a garbage truck that disposes of the waste material during the night, your brain uses the resting state to export the unused cerebral spinal fluid from your brain through your bloodstream and to your liver where it can be processed as waste. Avoiding sleep stops this process from happening. Waste material builds up. Your memories never have time to concretize or consolidate. And new information essentially goes in one ear and out the other. While many bleary-eyed students will attest to a heightened short-term memory the day of the big test, in the long run, the results are the same. Information is digested only for as long as it's needed, then it's promptly regurgitated, never to be remembered again. We know that sleep is very important for the consolidation of memory. So ironically, if you deprive yourself of sleep, you're less able to remember things. Keeping your appetite in check are two key hormones, leptin and ghrelin. Leptin tells your brain that you're full. Ghrelin says you're hungry. And a 2004 study suggests that all-nighters may stop leptin production in its tracks, elevating ghrelin levels, causing participants to eat more and gain weight. Normally, when you sleep, the metabolic processes responsible for digesting food and converting it into energy work in the background, but depriving your body of adequate rest also deprives it of the ability to regulate body weight. And to make matters worse, the foods you start craving aren't kale chips and celery sticks. Food consumption remain normal in sleep-deprived rats fed protein-rich diets, but increased 250% in rats-fed calorie-rich diets. Sleep deprivation 
may thus increase not only appetite, but also preference for fat-free, uh, fat-rich, rather, high-calorie foods. All right, we'll take more of a look at the consequences on the body of all-nighters when we come back from this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear all of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on itunes you can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like are you tired of taking medication to control your allergy symptoms do you suffer from uncontrollable asthma or eczema sublingual immunotherapy is a safe and effective alternative peachtree ear nose and throat center is committed to bringing the newest medical advances to their patients with sublingual immunotherapy you can now train your immune system to stop responding to environmental and food allergies no more shots no more trips to the doctor and freedom from taking daily allergy medication the drops are simply placed under the tongue three times a day both children and adults Adults can be treated. It is safe and cost effective. Call Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center today at 404-591-9100 for more information or to make an appointment. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Mention that you heard about sublingual immunotherapy on Radio Sandy Springs and get free allergy testing. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist here on America's Web Radio and your source for all mental health-related news. We're talking about what pulling an all-nighter does to your body now that it's final exam season for college students and also high school students. Anyone who's pulled an all-nighter knows that feeling groggy is often coupled with a sickly malaise. It's hard to put your finger on, but it's dangerously close to the start of a cold. Immediately sleeping to recharge often suppresses the budding illness, but sometimes it doesn't. And that comes as no surprise to sleep researchers. A lot of studies show our T-cells, this is one of our primary immune cells, go down if we are sleep-deprived. And inflammatory cytokines go up. Cytokines are proteins uh, that promote inflammation. And this could potentially lead to the greater risk of developing a cold or flu. This is the same principle behind resting when you're already sick. The less work the body has to do to fight infections on top of the laundry list of normal tasks it's asked to complete, the better job it can do at eradicating illness. In the same vein as upping your risk for illness, the chances of contracting major diseases also elevates after an all-nighter. 
though the big names like cancer, high blood pressure, and diabetes normally result from prolonged sleep deprivation, the added stress on the body in the form of poor diet and overtime demands can affect short-term malfunctions in as little as one night. A 2011 study found that obese participants faced a greater risk of high glucose levels, hyperglycemia, and low insulin levels when they were sleep-deprived than when they achieved a healthy amount of sleep. The researchers speculated that their findings could apply to all adolescents, not just obese teens. One of the stranger yet equally problematic effects of pulling an all-nighter lies in your psychology. In addition to ghrelin and leptin spiking, your levels of cortisol, the stress hormone, rise also. A study conducted by researchers at UC Berkeley found that sleep-deprived people lack emotional rationality. In real terms, this is the difference between learning the fridge is empty and feeling mild disappointment and learning the fridge is empty and exploding with rage. Researchers believe there is a natural brain circuitry that governs your emotional responses. When you don't sleep, this circuitry has the tendency to short-circuit. Something misfires. It therefore seems that a night of sleep may reset the correct brain reactivity to next-day emotional challenges by maintaining functional integrity of the correct neural pathways. In the end, a full night's sleep may only leave you feeling well-rested, but that feeling is actually concealing multiple complex, highly connected processes that need sleep to function. That's fairly convincing as far as I'm concerned, uh, but it also brings to my mind a study I read about many, many years ago where they took a bunch of college students of comparable uh, intellectual capability and they had them prepare for an exam. Some did a brief but thorough review and got a good night's sleep and others pulled an all-nighter studying much harder and in more detail. And guess who did better on the test? Of course, the kids who did the brief but thorough review but got a better night's sleep. So really, uh, even if you've procrastinated and you haven't spent enough time studying, you're still better off doing a brief but intense and concentrated review of the material and getting a decent night's sleep as opposed to doing all your studying that you should have done by staying up all night. But it's very hard to convince young college students or even the more senior high school students of this, given that many of their peers will be pulling an all-nighter. Now, interestingly, there was another study that I came across this past week somewhat related to this issue, and that is the use of ADHD drugs for better grades on college campuses. Apparently, many Ivy League college students admit 
using attention deficit hyperactivity or ADHD drugs for better grades. Now, uh, almost one in five Ivy League college students acknowledge they've used stimulants to perform better in school even though they haven't been diagnosed with ADHD. Varsity athletes and students in fraternities and sororities were more likely to report using the medications. However, about half of those who'd used the drugs said they'd done so fewer than four times, suggesting that regular use of the drugs is limited to a small number of students overall. It's not clear if the students surveyed are representative of their university or of American colleges at large. Still, the findings reflect other research that suggests stimulant use is a problem on college campuses across the country. And that is my sense of the issue. I think while this study may have only looked at Ivy League schools, you can certainly consider the non-medical use of stimulants to treat ADHD, such as Adderall and Ritalin, to be an extremely prevalent issue on college campuses all over the country, uh, regardless of the level of academic excellence of the institution. Now, in this study, the researchers surveyed 616 college students, none of whom were diagnosed with ADHD, at an unidentified Ivy League university in 2012. The students responded to an anonymous online questionnaire about their use of stimulants, such as Adderall, which is used to treat ADHD, and which is very, very widely used on college campuses to help with studying and grades. Now, I also just want to clarify something for those of you hearing me use the term ADHD repeatedly and not using the term ADD. Uh, the term ADD has no longer been used for many, many years now. Uh, it still lingers on in popular use, but in fact, the technical medical jargon that we use has been ADHD for quite some time. Um, some people think that it's only ADHD if there is hyperactivity as well as attention deficit, but the reality is any type of problem is called ADHD, and then you specify with attention deficit only, with hyperactivity, impulsivity only, or combined type, which includes both attention deficit and hyperactivity and impulsivity. Uh, the reason for the confusion well, that's because organized psychiatry likes to change its jargon every once in a while just to keep everyone confused. Now, let's get back to this study. So the drugs that uh, are used to treat ADHD, again, things like Adderall and Adderall XR and Vyvanse, Ritalin, Concerta, Focalin, and so on, they are chemical cousins of cocaine. Uh, and actually, in some ways, their mechanisms of action uh, bear some things in common. And if you do not have ADHD and you take these medications, they will speed you up. Uh, they will cause people to stay up for hours on end. 
and feel a higher level of alertness than they'd get from caffeine. So again, this would feed into the whole idea of pulling all-nighters to study in the hope of getting better grades. But the drugs pose various medical risks, especially when used with other drugs or when a person has a medical problem such as an undiagnosed heart condition. Of the students surveyed, 13% of college sophomores, 24% of juniors, and 16% of seniors said they'd used prescription stimulant drugs at least once. Students who used the drugs said they relied on them to write an essay, that was 69% of them, to study for an exam, that was 66%, or to take a test, that was 27%, or to engage in research, that was 32%. 28% of students surveyed who both played varsity athletics and were part of a fraternity or sorority said they used the drugs, compared to 16% of other students. These students may use the drugs because they're having more trouble managing their time and studying properly because they have the time commitments to sports or uh, the fraternity or sorority. Those who used the drugs were less likely, 18% less likely, to think using the drugs is cheating compared to those who had never used the drugs, 46% of whom consider it to be cheating. A third of students surveyed overall said they don't think using the drugs counts as cheating. Is it in fact cheating? So many students believe it is. But there's a twist to any assumptions about the drugs. Their ability to help students get better grades appears to be more of a myth than a reality. As for their source of the medications, the overwhelming majority of students who use the drugs get the stimulants from other students who are prescribed them. Research indicates peers often share these medications with another for free. The majority of adolescents, 18 to 22 years of age, believe it is fairly easy or very easy to get prescription stimulants. These findings were to be presented last Saturday at the annual meeting of the Pediatric Academic Societies in Vancouver, British Columbia, and therefore have not been published as yet. Some final thoughts on this subject, including whether it's cheating or not, when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. 
This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's breaking news, industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, Annual Publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook, a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay with you, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. Right before the break, we were talking about a study that a large number of Ivy League college students, and we can speculate college students in general, are taking stimulants normally used to treat ADHD just to help them better prepare for exams, write papers, do research. And the question is, well, is this really cheating or not? On the surface, it might seem obvious. Well, of course it's cheating. This is some sort of mental, psychological, psychopharmacological enhancement after all. And uh, they're they're using these drugs to gain an edge, to be sharper mentally, uh, to be better able to learn and remember things to improve their grades. So, of course, it's cheating. In fact, isn't it quite analogous to uh, student-athletes or professional athletes using steroids to improve strength and endurance or growth hormone to improve recovery from injury in order to achieve better athletic performance? Well, In spirit, it certainly is cheating. In practice, it may not be that these students get much of an edge at all. Uh, However, under any standard, it certainly has to be considered cheating. And uh, even though uh, only a minority of their peers think that it's cheating, it certainly has to be considered that, uh, whether or not it actually helps them. But certainly... If they're using it to be better able to stay up late studying, as we heard from the previous study we talked about, uh, they're only doing themselves harm physically and psychologically if they're using it to pull an all-nighter to study for an exam. Now, let's change the subject, and we're going to move on to talking about some things that give us some clues as to who may be at risk for suicide. And first of these two studies, 
shows that distorted negative thoughts are linked to suicide risk. People who have highly negative opinions of themselves and particularly gloomy thoughts about the future may be at increased risk for attempting suicide. The study included 111 people who had attempted suicide within 30 days before the start of the study and 57 people who received emergency psychiatric treatment but had not attempted suicide in the two years prior to the study. Those who attempted suicide were more likely to have what the researchers called distorted thinking. This includes an abnormally and unreasonably low sense of self-worth, again, unreasonably negative comparisons with others, and being excessively and highly critical of themselves. The finding that these people are more likely to attempt suicide held true even after the researchers took into account depression and feelings of hopelessness, which are normally considered markers for risk of suicide. And this study comes to us from the Journal of Cognitive Therapy and Research. The study also found that people who attempted suicide were highly likely to believe that bad things would happen to them in the future. However, when the researchers took feelings of hopelessness into account, catastrophic thoughts about the future were no longer strongly linked with attempted suicide. This may be because feelings of hopelessness and negative thoughts about the future are overlapping issues. Now, to prevent suicides, therapists would benefit from directly targeting patients' thoughts of hopelessness in clinical interventions. This presumes, of course, that someone who was depressed and potentially suicidal were in psychotherapy to begin with. A cognitive approach can help patients evaluate their beliefs that negative outcomes will inevitably occur and show them how to entertain other possible options. This can help to minimize patients' thoughts of hopelessness, help them to cope better, and ideally decrease their suicidal ideation and behaviors. Now, each year in the United States, nearly 40,000 people commit suicide. Very, very sad fact indeed, and during the time that it takes my show to air, between three and four people will take their lives. Now, there was another study having to do with suicide risk, and this was in older adults. And it turns out that in, when older adults consider suicide, depression may not be the main reason. That sounds very strange, but let's talk about what the issues were. Health, money, and family problems, not depression, are the main factors that trigger thoughts of death and suicide among elderly Americans, according to a new study. Previous research has pointed to depression as the main cause of suicide among seniors. However, 
this study of nearly 3,500 New York City residents aged 65 to 75 found that factors other than depression were responsible for thoughts of death and suicide 75% of the time. This seems strange and counterintuitive that there would be thoughts of suicide even absent any depression. The researchers asked this population directly why they had thoughts of suicide and death. <clears throat> and what they found contradicted past study findings. The vast majority of participants said factors other than depression, including illness, disability, pain, financial concerns, family problems, and bereavement are driving these thoughts. These unexpected findings suggest that efforts to reduce the high rate of suicide among older Americans will need to broaden the approach to prevention. The study was sponsored by the United States National Institutes of Health, that is our government research agency, and it was presented recently at the annual meeting of the American Association for Geriatric Psychiatry, and as such is uh, not published as yet. The national prevalence of suicide-related death in adults over the age of 65 is nearly 15 per 100,000, and this terrible, intractable tragedy is expected to increase with the aging of the baby boomer generation and the increase in uh, that age demographic. Current suicide prevention interventions focus largely on treating depression, and while suicide rates have declined in this population, ideal treatment does not achieve ideal results. So it's very interesting that they recommend focusing on other issues like pain and disability and financial concerns and uh, family problems. This actually reminds me somewhat of the growing problem of suicide in the military and how uh, the rates of suicide in the military had uh, overtaken the rates in the civilian population. And what you look at what is going on there, uh, a lot of it has to do with family problems, relationship problems, financial problems, uh, the stress of repeated and prolonged employments being away from home and family, the problems back home mounting and the stress from all of that Uh, becoming severely unmanageable, uh, even as the absurd amount of stress during the deployment uh, becomes routine, if not manageable. So focusing on factors other than just depression itself certainly can help prevent suicide in that population, and now we're finding the same in the elderly as well. All right, well, that's a, certainly a very difficult subject, to say the least, Uh, let me try to end the show on a little bit of a lighter note. Here's a study that shows that laughter may work like meditation in the brain. 
Laughter triggers brain waves similar to those associated with meditation, according to a small new study. It also found that other forms of stimulation produce different types of brain waves. The study included 31 people whose brain waves were monitored while they watched humorous, spiritual, or distressing video clips. While watching the humorous videos, the volunteers' brains had high levels of gamma waves, which are the same ones produced during meditation, which of course promotes improved mental state by relaxation and mindfulness. During the spiritual type videos, participants' brains showed higher levels of alpha brain waves, similar to those when a person is at rest. And finally, the distressing videos caused flat brain wave bands, similar to when a person feels detached, non-responsive, or doesn't want to be in a certain situation. Very interesting. So the spiritual videos mimicked being at rest or somewhat peaceful, whereas the distressing, violent videos uh, showed people to want to detach uh, themselves from it. Now, the study was scheduled to be presented this past Sunday at the experimental biology meeting held in San Diego. Humor associated with mirthful laughter sustains high amplitude gamma band oscillations and gamma is the only frequency found in every part of the brain. This means humor actually engages the entire brain. The experience is in the entire brain with the gamma wave band frequency and humor similar to meditation holds it there. They call this being in the zone. It's as if laughter gives the brain a workout and it allows for the subjective feeling states of being able to think more clearly and have more integrative thoughts, which is of great value to individuals who want to revisit, reorganize, or rearrange various aspects of their lives or experiences to make them feel whole or more focused. So there you go, more evidence to the value of laughter. Watch those funny videos. Have to quickly wrap up tonight's show. Hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again. But if not then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.